Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week, we are sharing the audio from a recently held online discussion on supporting a child, teen, or young adult in crisis. The host of this event is Amy Biancoli, and with her are guest speakers Kira Fanlow, a recovered troubled teen, Morna Murray, a parent who supported her son through crisis, and Sammy Tamimi, a child and adolescent psychiatrist. It's an honest and thought-provoking discussion and vital listening for anyone with an interest in parenting or the challenges facing our young people. But before we get to the discussion, I wanted to mention how you can support our work. Mad at America is a non-profit and we've been providing free-to-access content since 2012. You can help by donating to allow us to continue our mission to rethink psychiatry in the US and around the world. To donate, just visit madinamerica.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your support. And now on to the podcast. I'm Amy Biancoli, and I'm the family editor here at Madden America, which is a nonprofit webzine, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, um, that questions the prevailing pharmaceutical practices in psychiatry. And it takes a close look at research and highlights lived experience of people who've suffered harms. Um, in the existing system. So you can check us out at madinamerica.com and you can donate also at uh, madinamerica.com slash donate. Um, and so I want to, first of all, thank our three guests for agreeing to take part in this panel. Um, and I want to thank all of you out there for joining us. The topic is just so compelling and important. Um, what it means when a child of any age is in distress and what parents and other loved ones can do to support them. So we'll be healing stories of crisis, but also stories of healing and hope. So thank you. I think this is going to be a really important conversation. And uh, I think we'll start, though, with each of you introducing yourselves one by one. So Kira, would you like to go first? I would love to go first. So my name is Kira. So I saw there are lots of people who are parents in the chat or people who work with teens and adolescents. And I'm here sharing the perspective of someone who was a troubled teen, as they're called, and spent many years of my adolescence in some form of psychiatric or residential care. And I have a story that's probably similar to many of your children or the teens that you work with. I was full of curiosity and compassion and energy when I was younger. And as I started to grow up, I really, really struggled. And my parents sought out lots of different interventions to try to help me. And I spent time in hospital, wilderness therapy, and a therapeutic boarding school. And I have overcome my challenges. I am by no means healed or at any sort of final stage of healing, but I'm here to share some of my perspective and my story, and hopefully it's of use and um, hope to some of you. Thank you again. Thanks so much for being here. So uh, how about, um, how about Morna? Would you like to introduce yourself and what, what, what should, what should we know? Hi everyone. My name is Morna Murray um, and I work in Providence, Rhode Island. 
Uh, I'm an attorney and I run a federally funded legal agency for people with disabilities, but I'm really here as a mom today um, and very humbled, frankly, to be here as a mother. Um, my, what I have to share is about what my son has suffered. It's not about me. And I really hope that what I share today can help other parents as we support young people in our lives who we love and who may be experiencing distress. Um, I also want to say at the outset that while I work in the world of law and disabilities, I have never been comfortable with the terminology we use with disabilities and diagnoses. I, I hope that I do not offend anyone who does identify with certain terminology. I defer to people who experience differences themselves as to what language they prefer. But in our family, I have found that labels in general have been stigmatizing and unhelpful and frankly, just inaccurate at times. Um, and I come here after, uh, come to this world, I guess, after many years of um, searching for answers, not finding them, having many people weigh in about my son's atypical development. Um, he has been uh, diagnosed as having autism spectrum disorder, bipolar disorder, mood disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and I can't say that any of those labels have ever really been helpful or really describe him. Um, I have learned a lot as his mother. I am very grateful that he now has a psychiatrist who does not believe in labels uh, in working with him. And I think um, more than anything over the years and what I will share today in terms of his experience, I've learned the value and necessity of humility, um, which my son's psychiatrist defines as not having all the answers. Uh, a definition I really like. Well, thank you so much for being here. And you know, I just, I just, I just want to add that I just think it's so important the combination of people that we have, the, the you three panelists participating in this, like Kira, hearing your introduction, and you're, we're going to hear more from your story, um, uh, your experiences as an adolescent, and then moving to Morna, your story and and what people need to hear from your story, what people need to know as as a mother. And then we also have turning to to Sammy who's here and he has the perspective of psychiatry. So Sammy, could you introduce yourself? Let us let us know what we should know about about your work. Hello and uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this uh, panel. I very much um, echo what has been said so far. So I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Um, I work in a little city in the UK called Lincoln. And I've worked in the UK all my professional life. I've been a psychiatrist since 1989. So I've got a few years behind me. And one of the things that happened uh, during my psychiatry training is that I began to be concerned about the claims for this model and that model and for the treatments that we were using, which I could see from my own practice, uh, seemed to be better at creating patients than it seemed to be uh, for alleviating people's suffering. So it um, started me on a journey 
to find out about literature that just wasn't talked about in the trainings that uh, I was having from a variety of perspectives. And uh, I think most of my academic life has been about thinking about the assumptions that we have. And where it's led me is to an understanding that what we call diagnosis in psychiatry isn't diagnosis. It actually functions more as a commercial brand. And uh, it's the, the, the so-called science that we have behind what we call uh, psychiatric uh, knowledge is uh, so lacking. And the outcomes from current mainstream services are so poor that it has to have led me to question why that is. What, what, what's the roots of this? So in my later years, I've got round to thinking about the politics of all of this. Uh, what does it mean that we financialized uh, emotional lives? And what does it mean that we've developed a system of mental health care that I call a McDonaldized system? And so one of the things that um, orientates my practice these days is the notion that we need to rehabilitate uh, our emotions. Because I think the way we practice, we put our emotions in the category of things that are dangerous to us, of things we should be suspicious of, and of things that need to be controlled. And accidentally, I think, because I don't think this is a system that sets out to harm people but accidentally what i think it does is it sets you potentially on a course of an ongoing struggle with parts of you that you perceive to be abnormal in some way so rather than getting meaning from your experiences uh emotional experiences just become meaningless torture wow thank you um and thank all of you for your for your introductions. So let's let's dive in to the questions for for each of you, um, so we can hear a little bit more uh, about your perspectives and your personal stories. So coming back to Kira, um, I I'd really like to hear. I think we'd all like to hear a little more about your backstory as a quote unquote troubled teen um, in crisis and what happened and. And I know you touched on this in the outset, but um, if you could expand on it a little bit and and talk about your your journey and the impact of what happened to you um, on if your parents to the extent that that you want to talk about that, and then uh, we can go from there. But uh, yeah, let's start with that. Like, what pieces of your backstory were really really formative, and what were your moments when you really thought you could find another way and you started to see another way? Um, so my journey in the mental health care system started when I was pretty young. It started when I was eight. That was the first time that I went to therapy. And I was really sad and anxious as a child and I struggled to make friends. And I think my parents thought that that was abnormal, that I was going through something that I shouldn't be going through or I was not developing in the way that I was supposed to be developing. And so I started going to therapy at eight and I started self-harming when I was 10. And I started taking meds when I was 12. 
And when I was younger, I just felt this horrible feeling of aloneness. And I didn't know how to make sense of that because I was so young. And the self-harm started because I I felt this urge to like make sense of the way that I was feeling, like make sense of the pain. And I wanted to like make sense of the pain with more pain. Like I just did not know what was going on inside me. And I think that that was the first time I started feeling um, like I had something fundamentally wrong with me that was wasn't wrong with other kids, um, that I was always going to feel that way and that I had been born broken. And for like a few years when I was younger, I was kind of able to keep it together. Like I learned how to just, you know, kind of put on a brave face and keep, keep things under wraps. But when I got to high school, like it just completely fell apart. Like I just had what felt like a permanent pain in my heart. I was so sad. I felt like I was sad all the time. And I filled up my head with these narratives, like I'm not lovable. I'm not wanted. I'm not good enough. And I totally amplified those stories in my head. Like I was just always running through as Sammy was kind of saying, like just these painful, painful stories that had no purpose or had no point to them. There was like no clarity or resolution in them. I was just like beating myself over the head with these narratives and felt totally unmoored and like I didn't belong anywhere. And so because I was in so much pain, I was like, I'm going to do anything that I can to just try and dull how painful this experience is. And so maybe when I was eight and I was younger and I was just feeling sad and feeling blue you know, my parents maybe could have had a different approach to seeking medication for that. But when I was in high school, like I was cutting myself, I was running away. I wasn't going to school. I was fighting with my parents constantly. I was making suicide attempts. I was going from one really, really intense experience to another. Like, I think the best way to say this is like, I was very, I didn't have this sense of like internal coherence um, or direction. So I would feel like really, really overwhelmed. And I would do something to kind of press the exit button and get out of like the overwhelmed state. Like I would, you know, tell my parents a lie and like run away from home or something. And then I'd come back and there would be all this drama and all this chaos from that. And I would do something that was also intense to try and, um, mitigate that experience, like cutting myself or running away again. It was just like these constant cycles of like self-destruction and dysfunction. And I was doing um, talk therapy and meds at home for many years. I took tons of different medications and I went to many different therapists and did DBT and CBT and EMDR and like neurofeedback and nothing was changing. Like I still felt so wrong and broken inside. And I went to a psychiatric hospital and I was there for six weeks. And, you know, I feel like I learned ways to cope with the pain there better. Like, for example, I learned if I'm having a panic attack, I can put my head in ice water but I wasn't really getting to the root of like, why am I having panic attacks all the time? Like what has, what is happening in like my ecosystem and my internal emotional landscape that I'm feeling this way so much of the time. 
Um, so when I came back from, came back home from the hospital, I came back on a home contract, which is a pretty standard practice for teens who go into residential. Like you agree to a series of conditions to be allowed to come home. And I came home and like nothing had changed. And I was returning to all the same systems that I had left. So it was only a matter of time before I was kind of spiraling again. And then my mom found a wilderness therapy program. And she, at that point, had an inkling that she wanted something outside the medical model. She wanted something more natural and holistic. And wilderness therapy programs are far from perfect. Like I did feel very violated there and angry a lot. But wilderness, like nature as a setting, like as a container for therapeutic or personal work is phenomenal. And you were asking about like moments where I felt that something could maybe be different or that there could be another way. And that was the first time that I um, really felt that there was another way to understand my struggles. And there was another way to relate to my sadness that it wasn't actually pathological or it wasn't a sign that I was broken. It was actually a feature of being a human. And it was something that I needed to be present with and witness to and have kindness towards and curiosity towards. And just the experience of, you know, like for those of you who aren't familiar with wilderness therapy, it's backpacking. Like I was in the woods for three months and away from devices and social media and all of that stuff. And so that was an essential experience for me to be in touch with the earth and with my soul. And um, that was a really pivotal moment for me. And then everyone goes somewhere after wilderness, like people, teens who are in this industry go to many, many programs. Um, and so I went to a therapeutic boarding school after wilderness. And that was um, a very intense environment. There's a well-documented link between many residential programs and a cult called Synanon. So my school was one of the many that was based on practices and methodology of a cult. So it was a brutal place to be. And I was supposed to be there for two years. I ran away after about nine months because um, I didn't know it was more an act of desperation. Like I didn't know at that point what would work for me, but I knew what wouldn't. I knew that it wasn't what I was experiencing in that school. And I think that the, the seeds for that intuition and that knowing were laid from my time in nature, which again, I want to caveat by saying I had a, an ex a powerful experience because of the nature element. I know that there are many people who have horrifically traumatic experiences in wilderness therapy, but I sort of left, you know, I ran away from this whole paradigm of treatment because even though at that point I didn't have the answers, I just felt so strongly that that wasn't the way that I was going to heal, that that kind of um, pathologization and the brutality and the criticism of it was really, really not supportive to me feeling like a whole and healthy and functioning human. Wow. I, I actually, I read your piece for The Guardian about your wilderness experience. And what I gathered was that you, there were, in a way you, you were the positives you were sort of, as you were describing, able to almost reform your relationship with yourself as well as your family in some ways, but that it was in other ways, it was even abusive. Um, 
and and so I'm 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 wondering, uh, you know, there's this there's this out of the woods that is such a it, it's such a corny term way out of the woods and but in this case the wilderness analogy kind of fits. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about not just your path to healing? You know what what helped for you, and how did those experiences inform the work you now do as a mental health coach and mentor for teens? Like, and how do you, what do you convey to them um, in in terms of giving them hope? Uh, if to the extent that that you can describe it, and I know these are huge questions, and and you should each have an hour to answer them, but if you could just give us a little bit, a few insights into what you what. You, you learn that you carry on and convey to teens. Yes. As Amy mentioned, I now work supporting teens and their families through these struggles. And when I, when people have asked me, like, what helped me heal when I finally left the medical mental health model? And it was by finding people who inspired me. Like I went out in the world and I looked for people who, um, who had joy and who had integrity and who had passion and who I admired. And I put myself in their orbit so that I could learn from them and their wisdom. Like what was so hard for me when I was younger was that I had a very, I had a very narrow view of the world. Like I was only like 15, 16 years old. So I didn't have access to many adults besides my parents and the friends of my parents and the kids at my, they're not adults, but the kids at my school. So I felt like I was starving for just real connection with people and wanting to know other ways of, as we've talked about, just relating to the human experience. And so when I was an adult, I went and I tried to find that. I just tried to find people who I could learn from. And I think, you know, I'll say I was functioning for a long time before I healed. Like, to be honest, like my time at that school was so horrific. I was like, I cannot go back. Like, I cannot go back there. I will do whatever I have to do to not fall that far again. And then the other part of that was um, wilderness, again, an imperfect program. But adults always say to teenagers, like, it gets better. You're not always going to feel this way. But to me at that age, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I've always, to my memory, I've always felt this way. And I don't really believe that I can feel any differently. I don't have any other reference point than this. And so even though um, it was complex, I did feel very differently after spending three months in the woods. So that was a data point for me. Like I can feel different. Like even though I don't know how yet, I don't know when I will, I know that I can feel differently. So that knowledge that there was, there was more possible, there was more available was fundamental for me. And then meeting people who were embodying that was also fundamental for me and changing how um, I thought about these experiences. Like I think how you choose to identify with an experience is more critical than the experience itself. So I chose to see these experiences as uh, more like initiations, but they were like spiritual requirements of what I was supposed to go through to um, remember that I was whole and like come back to who I was and not as something that made me broken. So when I and working with teens and relating to them, it's there are many tools and frameworks that I can share with them. But I think most importantly is being someone who they can 
see as not so different from them. I think when I think of how I would love any sort of therapeutic or healing offerings to be for people, it's drawing on the idea of ancestry and that, you know, going to like the elders or the people who have gone before us and coming back to this idea of community and learning from each other. And so I try to be um, someone like that, like someone who can relate to them and just help them feel that they're not alone in what they're feeling and that they're going to be, they're going to be okay in the end, even if it doesn't feel that way right now. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, cause you're having gone through the same experience and there's similar experiences and in a lot of ways, your relationship is, is kind of like a peer or someone uh, with, yeah, I mean, a peer, but with, with expertise and, and that's that's wonderful um so we have to move on and uh as i said i would love to have like an hour-long conversation with each of you but uh we're gonna move on to morna um and morna if you can tell us a little bit um a little bit more about what happened to your son and his crisis um what he went through uh, as a child young and young adult and his journey since, and also how that affected you as his mother, um, how you were treated, how you, how you felt, um, and whether, whether you were, you were heard. So I would really like to hear, I think we'd all really benefit from what you have to say. Thanks, Amy. And Kira, thank you. That was so powerful. I resonated with so much of what you said. Um, so my son, I mentioned he had uh, developmental differences. Um, he met his developmental milestones, but he was late. Uh, he was born in the early 90s, which is significant because at that time in the United States, at least, uh, it seems like half the kids in schools were on psychiatric medications or being recommended that they take Ritalin or some other medication. Um, and another uh, factor that's um, important in my son's story is that his father and I are divorced. We divorced when he was five, but we are on very different ends of the psychiatric medication spectrum, which made life difficult, to say the least, uh, for making decisions. Um, but given the fact that um, he has some difficulty with learning and he experienced a lot of social anxiety and anxiety in general, as soon as he entered school, it, he started being receiving recommendations. We started receiving recommendations for him to be evaluated and medicated, et cetera. And uh, there was a lot of pressure to medicate him um, from kindergarten on, which I resisted. And let me also say um, in this story that I am the person that resisted in this story of ours. Um, I'm not painting myself as some kind of hero. I, I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. Um, I was going on blind instinct and also I was raised to question things and I wasn't getting answers to the questions that I was asking. Um, I think that the position that his father and other professionals took, I'm not criticizing them. It's much more mainstream. It's much more typical, but, um, but, but I didn't, I didn't accept those answers that people were giving us. So in any case, fast forward to uh, when he was 13, his psychiatrist um, prescribed uh, Zoloft for him, an SSRI, 
Uh, and um, my son at the time was underweight, small for his age, um, very gentle, sweet, just the sweetest kid in the world. And he started taking Zoloft. And uh, for about two weeks, it seemed to be pretty, uh, he had a pretty uh, good reaction to it. And then suddenly the bottom fell out. And within a couple of days, he wasn't sleeping um, and he was becoming irritable. I called his psychiatrist. She said, just stick with it. And then it became like overnight, the world turned upside down. He couldn't sleep. He went into, I had never seen this before. I didn't even have words for it. Um, but what I come to have come to understand a full-blown state of manic agitation, he was a completely different child. Um, it was the, the greatest shock I have ever experienced. It was heartbreaking to witness and be present to him in the state that he was in, the suffering that he was experiencing. I called his psychiatrist. She said to discontinue the Zoloft and to start him on Zyprexa, an antipsychotic. Again, I was lost. I, did, I was going to do whatever she told me to do, thinking that um, that was the way to help him stop this ungodly suffering that he was experiencing. My perception was this Zyprexa made him worse, which I reported to her, and she said that was impossible. I have since learned that, you know, you can have medication-induced uh, mania, but that was not something that was I found back then and certainly not something that a psychiatrist believed. Um, by the grace of God, I had some instinct that going to the hospital was not going to be a good thing, and I resisted him being hospitalized. I was lucky to have an employer um, who was very understanding and allowed me to take leave. And I basically just stayed present to him during this episode, which lasted about two weeks um, where we did multiple, I did multiple things to keep his environment calm and hope that this, this extreme state of agitation would, would pass, uh, which I was figured would pass. And, and somehow we would go back to like some state of normalcy Um but that's not what happened. Uh, once once he was uh, not agitated any longer and was on um, the antipsychotics, that led to a an immediate diagnosis of um, bipolar disorder, which I questioned and I didn't understand, and and was since he hadn't had symptoms like this before, and uh, was told by a psychiatrist that people with bipolar disorder often have manic reactions to SSRIs. And that was that was the basis for the um, diagnosis. And again, I mean, I was completely alone in questioning this, which was very difficult and really was somewhat crazy making. And again, this is not to to um, to criticize people who were acting probably with, you know, very good intentions, but, it was crazy making to see these kinds of decisions being made almost overnight about this child who had never experienced anything but anxiety up to this point and was highly sensitive to just about everything in his environment, including allergens, foods, and, and fabrics. Um, so um, it was it was very difficult. It started me into a phase of um, asking questions, not getting answers. Being considered naive, argumentative, um, labeled anti-medication when actually I'm I'm not anti-medication. Um, as my son's medications grew, 
to address side effects. And I know this story is very typical for people. Um, now I didn't know it then. Um, he came to be on five and six psychiatric medications at the same time, which I questioned. I questioned the interaction of the medications. I was always told that they were perfectly safe, that they had been tested and that anything that was going on with him was not due to medications, but was due to, you know, the old chemical imbalance, uh, mental illness. Um, so, um, maybe I should just stop there. That was, that was his significant, uh, crisis that started us down the road of medications. Um, he then went through a subsequent, a subsequent crisis as a young adult, which led to a lot of, of good things, but, uh, it was, it was very bad for a period of time as well. Um, unfortunately listening to this, I know there are many, many people who can relate. And um, it's it's not an unusual story that you're telling. Uh, if just, if you could quickly, and I know, again, I know it's hard to, to say, to tell any piece of this very quickly, but um, what, what helped? And what can you say to other parents who are going through something similar that would maybe give just like a spark of, a spark of light? Yeah, I mean it's it's dark in this world many times, and I I want to acknowledge that, but I have found help and I have found hope and support. Um, so um, he ended up uh, in a setting um, that was geared around um, independent living skills, et cetera, and was at a lower level of medication than he had been in years at just about six years ago at the age of twenty four. He changed the medication, had the negative reaction again. That led to a, a flood of medications again, and he ended up hospitalized. That is when I learned, you would think I, I would have known this by now, but that is when I learned that going into the hospital, you lose all control over everything. And that prompted me then to really start looking around and saying, this, this just can't work. <laughs> like this, this isn't helping him. This is hurting him. The stuff that that's happening with him are creating the same symptoms that we're purporting to treat. So I started reaching out to people. I read anatomy of an epidemic. I had never heard of this before. Um, and started reaching out to authors who I will say were without fail, kind, compassionate, accessible. <laughs> Whereas I had difficulty reaching my son's own psychiatrist. I could, I found that I could email authors of books and they would respond to me, you know, within a day. And I just started educating myself, honestly, and um, looking for the alternatives, knowing that as a parent, even being a person who worked in this field, you are not taken seriously uh, by our psychiatric system. I know that there are people who do listen. So I'm not making a sweeping generalization, but as a whole, it is a patriarchal system that is not designed to respond to parents, particularly mothers. I always found it very curious uh, when I was able to get over the, the personal, the feeling personally attacked, and that took quite some time. Um, but when I was able to do that, I always found it curious that mostly male psychiatrists would label mothers as hysterical mothers when they're children were in crisis as if we were as if we were not supposed to be upset when our children are in crisis um so but i did i did find um providers i found other parents i found people who could help who could speak that language more than i could um i learned to be very factual and to be very non-emotional when dealing with people in the psychiatric system and i learned 
um, the value of keeping my son at home, uh, not involved in any institutional setting if he was experiencing any kind of semi-crisis. Um, and through, I will say too, like on a personal level, staying spiritually grounded, taking care of myself, listening to my instincts. These are all things I learned throughout this process of being of the greatest support to my son and connecting with other parents. Um, so I, I think that the more that we connect with each other and the more that we talk about this and the more that we push back on the fact that these treatments um, and, and treating suffering like it's some kind of pathological disease um, is not helping anyone uh, at all. And parents are part of this too, a big part of this. And I don't think parents want to make mistakes but we do. Um, and it's very difficult to stand alone in this environment. Um, and so uh, I do I do think that finding support whenever you can. And I, I noticed there was a question in the chat earlier, how do you find a psychiatrist who doesn't use labels? It takes a lot of looking. Um, I, I started through Mad in America's resources and just called and called and called till I, I found someone who is wonderful. So you have to kind of not give up. I guess that's that's the theme of of what I've learned. Not give up. Wow, that's it in in a nutshell. And I and un, unfortunately, another piece of it that is nearly universal is is the way parents aren't heard. Um, you're you're speaking specifically to moms, you know, being the suggestion that you're hysterical, and that's that's a whole other that's a whole other topic of conversation. But. Um, yeah, that's such so important, the element of being heard, wanting to be heard, and having to adjust your own emotions in order to be heard. Um, so thank you so much. And um, we're going to move on to Sammy now. I have some questions, uh, more questions. I, I get many questions. I won't be able to ask them all, but... Um, just if you could tell us a little bit, and you did, you you touched on it in your introduction, how you came to this place professionally, your backstory. Um, I'm just curious why you became a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist to begin with. And I know you also touched that in, in of course, in, in your book, Insane Medicine, you talked about that. Uh, but if you could tell people what you saw that brought you to your critical psychiatry perspective. Um, and you also, you talk in your book about the McDonald, McDonaldized system and the branding. So what did, what did you see uh, back then? If there are any particular stories you could tell? I think when you're telling any story, you, th there is a choice about when you start the clock. Um, so I could start the clock by going right back to my childhood, which was uh, I grew up in um, Iraq. Was my father's Iraqi and my mother's English. Um, had to leave uh, when I was 14 because of a deteriorating political situation. So came with my older brother, and we each stayed in different um, bits of the extended family in England while the rest of the family was still uh, in Iraq. So there was that kind of culture shock experience and the beginning of uh, understanding that there are different ways of viewing the world that make perfect sense, different people in different contexts. 
Um, I also had uh, uh, parts of my family who were very religious and parts of my family who were very um, political, and they disagreed with each other. They had a the the political part felt that the religious part was taking them down the wrong line, and vice versa. So I think from my growing up years, I've perhaps had some training in being able to look at systems and belief systems and question who has the truth. And so during my training in um, psychiatry and then in child psychiatry, um, that was one of the things that I kept trying to find where is the basis for these things that we're being taught. Um, and I remember one of the moments that really got me started on this critical journey was when I first went into child psychiatry, my first job in child psychiatry was in 1992. And in many ways, I consider myself a traditional child psychiatrist because where I worked was predominantly systemic in its way of thinking. So understood that uh, children live in contexts. Uh, so that, uh, you know, because a lot of the decisions in their life are not made by them, but by the people in various caring relationships to them. But also it understood that children are developing. In other words, the concept of change and the idea that things are always in motion and changing rather than the idea of something static was also part of the way we practiced. And in the my first job in child psychiatry, we didn't use any diagnosis. Basically, things um, the young people who presented to us were more or less categorized, if they were at all, by their presenting problems. So it could be behavior problems, it could be self-harm or suicidal ideation. Um, so in those days, we, we just didn't use those uh, concepts. And then, um, like most things that happen in America... Eventually, it starts crossing over the pond, as we call it. Um, and so ADHD was beginning to grow as a concept. And I was working with a consultant in um, my latter training years, where it was beginning to sort of be talked about in the UK. This is now towards the mid-90s. And he asked me if I want if he wanted um, he said he wanted to do a project on ADHD amongst the local population because uh, we were working in a part of London that had quite a sizable ethnic minority population. And he asked me if I would join him, and I did. And so I did all the kind of background research, looking at various papers and history and so on. And the thing that I just couldn't get my head around was, what is ADHD? Surely it's just not those behaviors of attention deficit, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. And of course, that's all it was. So I couldn't get a sense of what we meant by ADHD. And that kind of started me on that journey of questioning, uh, what, what are the assumptions? Uh, it was very different to much of the rest of medicine, but not all of the rest of medicine, because you know what diabetes is, and there is an, what you might 
consider an empirical anchor, something you can measure. So diabetes is defined as blood sugar that's too high. And you have a way of um, measuring that. Now, there's all sorts of debates about where the cutoff is and when to use diet and what the complicating factors are, et cetera, et cetera, and what might be the secondary causes of a raised blood sugar. But we know what sort of thing diabetes is. And I, um, the more I practiced in um, psychiatry, the more I realized that we don't even know what sort of thing we're talking about here. Our, um, what we're calling diagnoses are just descriptions. So um, they don't provide a function of answering that why question. Um, Not in the same way that you find in much of, but not all of the rest of medicine. Um, And one of the problems with that, which uh, I mean, I I have to say I'm very... um, uh, I, I feel very humbled by listening to Kira and then Morna, and I think they really um, explained the consequences for real people in their real lives of carrying on with believing that what we have is a diagnostic system. In other words, when you diagnose someone with ADHD or depression or bipolar disorder, you've said the reason for you having these experiences is because you have this condition. So we use it as if it's a diagnosis, as if it has explanatory power, but it doesn't. So a description can't uh, um, cause itself. You can't say low mood is caused by depression in the same way that you can't say the pain in my head is caused by a headache. The description is just a, a, another another way of saying the same thing. And what then happens is that that's how we then end up in the situation that Morna was with, with her son, and Kira was with, where um, you're chasing this idea that there's something wrong in you that you keep having to put new diagnoses and new treatments. And I guess I came to realize that all the treatments that we provide, therapy as well as medication, when it's done within the framework of diagnosis, is better at creating long-term patients. And all the evidence says that. So you're you're what you're saying is you're 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 affirming the stories that we just heard from your perspective Absolutely. as a psychiatrist, what you've seen in terms of the harms and the failures of the system. My second question for you is um, what when a, when a parent with a, a a child in crisis comes to you, what can you tell them that actually helps? What have you learned from your practice? that actually helps? What do you say to them? How should they support their kids? And what do you say or advise them to say to the, to the, to the children themselves, whether they're, they're kids or, or a little bit older teenagers? What, what do you say? What helps? What have you learned? Well, I like to see um, young people with their parents, um, uh, and I like them to be involved in 
those conversations. And of course, there isn't a formula for, you know, if you follow this, because in some ways, that's the problem with diagnosis, with medication, and with most of the therapies that we use. They seem to imagine that there is a formula that you follow. But I do have a few principles um, that I try to keep in mind uh, in my work. And I think one of the ones that has become most important to me um, is I, I feel in a way we've created, uh, th there's never been a generation as pathologized as the current generation. And there is something really awful about having created a system that locates a disorder, a dysfunction, a dysregulation, a pathology, a disease that locates the nature of the problem that you're experiencing as being in yourself, in your child in some way. And the thing that I always try to maintain is that there is nothing wrong in you. There is nothing wrong in you. You do not have a disease. You do not have a dysfunction. Your emotions are not dysregulated, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the young people, and I'll just call her Charlotte for now, and, and when Kira was talking, it reminded me of her. This is going back many years. I remember having this conversation with somebody who I'd been seeing for a good couple of years and we tried all sorts of things and then one day she was coming up towards the time where we would have to think about discharging her from um, our young people's service and she said to me something along the lines of that she's never going to get rid of whatever this is uh, inside of her there's always going to be there and she's sort of given up hope and it kind of spurred us on to having a conversation about what does she mean. And it was then when I began to realize just how powerful it is when you construct your experience as being the result of something that she was labeling as a mental illness. So she had labeled her experience as being a mental illness. So even in the times that she was feeling better, it was a bit like a shadow at the back of her mind that was always waiting to pounce and that she couldn't get rid of. Um, and after that uh, uh, conversation, actually, we only had a few more sessions and um, she began to realize that uh, instead of fighting or feeling that she's in some sort of ongoing struggle, having to suppress a part of her or having to try and find a way to control or get rid of, um, that actually it's about learning to live alongside because there's nothing wrong in there. Um, so, uh, and listening to Kira, I was reminded of so many stories I've heard like that, that there comes a moment that for whatever reason, and this is the bit that I find hard to predict, as long as you keep in mind that there's nothing wrong in the person, and uh, there often comes a moment where the young person, it starts to click. 
that this is not something that they should be trying to find a cure for. This is not something that they need to find a way to control or suppress or even to express. It's not about catharsis. It's not about uh, suppressing. Uh, it's about learning to just be with the way that you are. And so there's, for me, a lot of it is now about patience and about keeping that idea that that opportunity will come. And uh, I don't know how it will come. I don't know when it will come. Um, and and the young people I see, they're all, you know, they're bright, they're creative, they're empathic. Um, uh, um, and there's so many things. So even stories of suffering, I think as well, we get too caught up with the trauma aspect of suffering, understandably. But stories of suffering are also stories of survival, you know. It's being able to see that the person in front of you is more than just the problem that they're coming with. That's the the classic framing of questions. I'm reminded is like what happened to you versus what's wrong with you. And um, I'm also constantly struck. You mentioned you know people, young people grappling with this idea that they have a, a lifelong illness um when in fact it's just like not life it's life this is the nature of someone just uh, someone just said on the chat i'm a, a human not a pathology um so i uh, this is all so much stuff to process and digest but um I, a couple follow-up questions I have for you all, and you can just jump in with with answers. Um, one is uh, how important is listening and being heard, and that's been one of the recurring themes um, as parent, as a teen. Um, how important is that from each of your perspectives and? For you, Sam, your perspective is listening to the parent and the young person who's who's in your care. And then the other question um, that I'd really like to hear your thoughts on is how should the system change? How and also in more the extent that we can kind of envision it, how how can it change? Is there some granular way, uh, some sort of harm reduction way in which? practice can change like so how should it change in terms of being heard i might be slightly controversial here because it's it's a it's a kind of it's a banal question because who's going to say that um you know that they don't listen to their patients uh all doctors imagine that they're they're good at listening and uh, observe so to me it is what is the framework that we have in our mind when we listen to people? Because the questions we ask, I think, are probably just as important as the answers that we hear. Um, so I just wanted to sort of complicate that uh, a little bit more because, of course, we need to listen. But we also need to think about in the questions that we ask, how are we framing? What are we trying to listen? So I find sometimes that um, I can I can be listening to a flow, but I have certain points where I want to interrupt 
because I want to see if the conversation can move in a different direction or see if rather than talking to me, what uh, are you talking to your son or your daughter? Uh, you know, maybe you should be having that conversation with them. You know, and I can I can listen to that. So I think there is something about um, what the framework we have when we're listening. And in terms of um, services, to me, there are all sorts of reformist things that we can do. But I'm personally somebody who's looking forward to the time that we have a paradigm shift. And for me, the paradigm shift would happen and can only happen. And it's not to do with medication. It's not to do with therapy. It's to do with diagnosis. I think we have to understand that what we have is not diagnosis and we have to drop the language and all the concepts uh, attached to diagnosis and services being designed around an idea of diagnosis. Thoughts on that, uh, Kira or Morna? Yeah, I was going to say something about being heard. Um, it's interesting because I think as... Um, as mothers, and you know, I'm not discounting fathers from this, but mothers do play a different type of role sometimes, often. Um, if you get to somebody, if you finally get to a provider who appears to be listening to you, you unleash an entire lifetime of experiences often. And that can be a turnoff, I'm sure, to many providers. Um, there is a pent-upness to, I think, sometimes wanting to be heard um, because you feel your child suffering so acutely and you want it to stop uh, or you want to provide some something that is at least helpful, you know? So I I, I guess I, I see it as almost being seen and understood and creating an authentic connection. I think the first time that I experienced that was like, one of the hugest reliefs of my life. Um, and it is so powerful. And also you can't fake that, you know, when someone's really connecting with you and hearing you, you know it. And uh, I, I know from my son's experience, he, he does too. So it's really significant. Thank you. I wanted to echo what um, Sammy said about the questions and the frameworks. Because I remember going to doctors and having them ask me to rate my suicidality on a scale. It would be like, are you a 8.5 or are you a 5? And there wouldn't be a further question driving me to go into what was going on, like questions that were oriented towards my soul or my heart. And I think that I love what he said, like the questions are just as important as the listening, like what you're asking, because that's what you're, you're bringing people to, to that kind of understanding. And I think in terms of how I would like to see the paradigm shift, um, speaking from the teenager's perspective and the treatment programs that exist for teens, they often identify the teen as the designated patient or they are like the black sheep. Like they are the person in the family who's the most outwardly dysfunctional. And a lot of programs fail to see that someone is a product of the ecosystem that they're living in. And this is not at all to place blame on my family by any means, but to think about the kinds of communities and structures that someone is returning to or living in, and that people who have community and who have a sense of belonging and a sense of love in their home base, that's something that's preventative. 
against a lot of these conditions and a lot of things that can happen to people in their their young adult years. So I think just focusing on like the integration part of people who do seek healing and seek care is really important. I um I have a couple couple questions that came from the the Q and A box there, and it starts with you, Kira. Was there a way that adults built their relationships with you that made a difference to you as an adolescent? Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, there were a lot of adults who I felt looked at me like um, something to be fixed. And we've talked a lot about, I was slapped with so many diagnoses and felt very limited in our relationship because they saw me as someone who was borderline, or they saw me as someone who had oppositional defiance disorder. And I think that um, there were other adults who approached me with curiosity about my experience and unconditional love. And I think like unconditional love is not focusing on like what's going wrong. It's like, focusing on the beauty of what can become. And when someone is in pain, like when someone is suicidal, like, do you just look at the pain that they're having? And do you just look at their behavior? Or do you see the bigger picture? Like, do you see all their potential and all that they can become and the whole totality of who they are? And so there were adults who related to me that way. And they would see me, like me beyond how I was behaving in that moment and having the experience of being related to that way really helped me feel safe with them and open to building rapport with them. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and I should have I should have mentioned before I ask this question, which is probably for Sammy, but if anybody else wants to hop in, that's that's great. But I should reiterate what Karina said earlier was that. Um, you know, Madden America can't um, provide or sanction any particular medical advice. So just general themes so that, that we're discussing. So with that said, one of um, the people in the Q&A box asked, um, what about people like my grandson who has violent thoughts and is a compulsive liar? How do I teach him to accept who he is? That's not a question that it's possible to answer. I don't know this person. I don't know the grandson. Uh, I don't know the situation. Don't know the history. Don't know his strengths. Don't know his things that make... Because I kind of believe that every kid has something great about them, whether we choose to see them or not, whether in our own stress as parents uh, or in our own communities uh, if we are if we have a lot of things that are causing various types of stress financial marital um, school-based uh, whatever it is when we're stressed just as human beings, it becomes harder and harder for us to see things other than the things that worry us. So when we have kids, I mean, you know, there's that phrase that, uh, you know, you come home and kick the cat. It's, it's that idea, isn't it? When you're feeling stressed, you're going to take it out on uh, those uh, around you. There's going to be a tension in the home. So 
One of the things that I think, if you look at things more broadly politically, is we have societies where there is a huge amount of stress in in all sorts of ways and a huge amount of alienation. These are sometimes not great environments that allow you to just accept children for the way they are. So often children then grow up feeling that in order to have some sense of value, they have to be good at something. They have to do something. It's what I call the compare and compete culture. So there are all sorts of background things that I think make it harder for us to see what it was that we loved about this kid or what it was that's great about them. Um, and so the only advice is, uh, that I can give is try and remember that every kid has within them something that makes them fantastic. That sounds like essential and deeply human advice, because isn't that true of everyone? We're all broken in just different ways, and we all have sources of strength and beauty. Um, any any other thoughts, Morna or Akira, on that that question before I move on? Just that Sammy should be the nope. psychiatrist for everyone in the world. <laughs> I think he's that. probably going to be getting a lot of a lot of emails. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Morna, uh, do you know of any community or organization working to change the narrative uh, in the system? Uh, and this person who who texted this, who 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 put down the question, says, "I am doing that on an individual basis and looking to team up with others." And I'm assuming they mean um, the medication. psychiatric system, the mental health system, medication as pertaining to youth. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of any particular organization focused on that. I think there's lots of little efforts going on in terms of parents connecting. I know that one of the, um, my organization is again called a PNA. I know one of the PNAs, the Maryland PNA has filed a class action lawsuit based on polypharmacy of, of kids in foster care. That's the first time I've seen something like that happening. Um, but you know, this is not mainstream stuff. Um, I have disagreements within my own family. It's very difficult to make progress. It's, it's, um, unfortunately, as Sammy was describing, um, um, and I think we're all saying in a way how, how isolationist all of this can be and alienating this kind of treatment is it's a lot of us are, are feeling very alone. Um, and, um, I guess I will also mention, and Kira might be able to speak to this, um, more pertinently, but I do think that peer support, um, is key, uh, for teens and young adults in crisis, having peers to go to, and then getting that sense, like there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. I'm not fundamentally flawed or pathological. I'm, I'm okay. You know, um, so, uh, but no, I don't. I don't know of a movement. I I think we're on the brink of it. I hope, but I can't speak to anything particular. Yeah, you're right about the mainstream too. I mean, uh, it's a very it's dominated by completely different narrative narratives than what we're discussing today. Um, but for everyone, how can the current providers better educate families, children, and other professionals to understand the adolescent transitional period? not as pathology. Thoughts? 
Yeah, I kind of wonder, how is it that we started this war on our emotions? And adolescence is a time, of course, where those emotions intensify and they start being accompanied by existential questions like, who am I? Where do I fit in? What's the meaning of being alive? Uh, what does the future hold? Who sees value in me? What do I look like to the rest of the world? Etc., etc. Um, so I, I often talk to um, families and young people because uh, sadly we get a lot of people who come who are convinced having googled and looked around and spoken to others that uh, the young person has a bipolar disorder or ADHD or something like that. So I explain to people, look, adolescence is a bipolar disorder. Um, get over it. You just have to accept. It's a time where people feel intensity of emotions. Um, and the one th there, there are very few things that I can predict, but the one thing that I can predict, again, which I say to people, is that you will change. That's the only thing I can predict with certainty. Your interests may change. The music that you like might change. Your idea of what you want to do in the future might change. Um, the people you hang out with might change, etc., etc. So uh, that's the one thing that I can predict with any certainty. Uh, I don't know how as a culture we got to this point where we've become so afraid of, the, uh, of experiencing intense emotions that we've started to label them as potentially problematic and then as potentially problematic that there's no, no mechanism in terms of what I would call ordinary and or understandable ways of uh, getting your head around them, that you need an expert these days for um, uh, to help you understand what is wrong. Why is a person behaving like that? So we've really narrowed the idea of what is expected and understood as ordinary. And I don't use the word normal because the opposite of normal is abnormal, whereas I always use the word ordinary, where it's extraordinary is the opposite. So, um, But we've narrowed this idea of what is within the realm of the acceptable and the ordinary. Um, so actually, a lot of the work that I do now with young people and families I tend to get, as a consultant in the team, the ones who've got stuck or have been through lots of therapy they've, or been in inpatient units and they get uh, sent out on all these medications. Most of the work that I do is essentially trying to deconstruct that and trying to help people uh, appreciate that there's actually nothing wrong with them or rather nothing wrong in them. I, I just I keep writing down things that you're saying just so I remember them. I, <laughs> there's so many so many nuggets in there. Um, Morna and and Kira, any any thoughts on that? I was thinking as well when Sammy was talking that the, yeah, there does seem to just be this 
prevalent obsession in the culture with like things being good all the time and being okay. Um, like this mentality of everything has to be happy and positive and just so. And I think that we've forgotten that like there are seasons to life and cycles to life. And the same with just the human lifespan. Like you wouldn't expect an infant to be able to talk when they're three months old. And there are certain, you know, struggles that adolescents have that are developmentally appropriate because when you are grappling with questions like, where do I fit in and where do I belong? And do I have value? And what is the meaning of me being here? Those can naturally stoke some feelings of anxiety or sadness or existential dread. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. Um, and I think what's so ironic is like when people try to fix the problem, it actually exacerbates the problem because it's just endorsing the idea that there is a problem. And so if you have a child who is presenting with sadness or, you know, anxiety about something at school, it's like, maybe that's actually okay that they feel that way. And instead of labeling it and then making it a huge thing, that's going to be a thing then for years that they're going to carry. It's just a part of their journey and it's just part of what they're experiencing. So I really appreciate um, what Sammy was saying about um, helping people unwind that assumption that something is wrong. And yes, like making every aspect of someone's expression a pathology. Thank you. Yeah, I was also struck. Somebody put in the chat. Apologies, Morna. Um, someone put in the chat noted that um, that the prolonged grief disorder is now in, in the DSM. So in grief, which is always had a little asterisk over it as the one extreme emotion you're allowed to have because it makes perfect sense on a human level is now has now been pathologized. Well, I, I agree with uh, everything that was just said. I wanted to just. Um kind of add that people with developmental differences uh, diagnosed with autism or whatever. I noticed somebody in the chat had said that they identify as neurodivergent, a term that I know my son likes. Um, I, I think that's even amplifying the adolescent changes that are going on. You don't completely understand it. Uh, I, I love your chapter in your book, Sammy, um, about autism spectrum disorder. Um, I've read that a few times now, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but the other thing too, that I've often questioned is the use of psychiatric medications for people with developmental differences and brains that are maybe wired differently and how we know so little about that. But that on top of well, one of the questions that I used to ask all the time in my, my son's teen years was, but is some, isn't this puberty as well? Um, and all of those changes that are going on, um, in adolescence, it's it's really quite something, and calling it a war on adolescents, I think, is is very accurate. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I wrote down. <laughs> I, there are just so many truths said so succinctly. Um, okay, so it seems this is another question. It seems that today parents have lost connection with their children due to millions of distractions and constant pressure to achieve some great thing. Are there constant unrealistic expectations for our children and for parents as well? I guess I was facially reacting to that as an underscore. Yes, 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 and yes. But um, yes, I mean, gosh, our poor kids are expected to be perfect and excel at every possible thing under the sun. Again, speaking as a parent now, you know, I, I don't even want to get into the history of mother blaming when it comes to developmental differences, but that is still alive and well. 
Um, and, uh, I, I'm not here to, to, to drag that out. Um, but it, it's, um, it's a barrier for young people. Forget about what it does to, to mothers. It, 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 it cuts off that communication. Um, and, and just sort of puts somebody over there as their input is not, is not valid. I mean, in short, yes, definitely. I think there's way too much expectation on teenagers and, I think people say this all the time, but I can't overemphasize its impact. Like I think social media has, sorry, there's like a siren in the background. I think social media has given people, Sammy was touching on the com- the comparison, like always comparing themselves and getting this huge barrage of information and people's successes like all the time. And there's so much um, pressure to just be perfect in every way, like academically, physically, socially, et cetera. And I think for parents, I think that there is, um, a lot of pressure on parents because I don't think that I know, well, I'll speak for my family. Like my parents didn't necessarily have a lot of family nearby and people like aunts and uncles or grandparents that we could rely on during this time. So it was so much pressure on them to be everything for me and figure everything out and figure everything out themselves instead of having like, um, a broader family structure or broader communities where they didn't have to hold everything on their own. Yeah, yeah I, I just want to echo what both Morna and uh, Kira are saying. Because uh, just as it's become harder to be an ordinary kid, I think it's harder to be an ordinary parent these days. These expectations on our kids, obviously, they transmit through to the parents. And uh, and the, the whole mother-blaming stuff is not just in our culture, it's also in our therapeutic cultures. Um, it's very widespread. So when things go well, mothers don't get any praise for it. Occasionally fathers do for some reason. Um, uh, and when things go badly, it seems to fall on the mothers to be sorting it out. Um, one of the things that uh, I've come to um, think is really important is that we also be able to uh, allow parents to be able to have a voice, um, to be listened to. And one of the things I, I say to parents is, look, uh, all good parents feel guilty most of the time about their kids, okay? You worry, should I have done this? Should I have done that? Have I been too soft? Have I been too hard? Have I helped enough? Have I spoken to them enough? Have I? Am I trying too close to them? Am I close enough? So there's nothing I can do to change that. You're going to feel guilty, whatever I do. So we might as well just accept that and put that to one side. Um, but we have created a culture where it's just hard to be an ordinary parent and an ordinary kid. And I think on on that note. Um... Maybe this this is a good time to reflect on some of the themes, ordinary parent, ordinary kid. And Sammy, what you were saying earlier about, about the idea of ordinary as opposed to normal, abnormal, that maybe should one of the things I, I keep hearing is that there's we should have we should expand our understanding of what it means to be an ordinary kid or an ordinary teen. Um and some other themes that have popped out was the importance of listening. Um as we we're saying, and that there there can be hope, and I, I 
personally in my work with Madden America, every conversation I, I have with someone, I, I think these stories should be getting so much attention. People who have lived through these things, because personal stories convey such hope. And just the fact that that Kira, you're here, and 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 Morna, you're here talking about your son, and and I just all of this, I think, conveys both the humanity of what people go through, the ordinariness, to use that term again, and also the the the, the hope. So, uh, what what other themes do you think emerged? Well, I I would say the the critical need for non pathologizing experts like Sammy. Um, there, the, I just can't say enough about that. Um, and I know that, that we all know how rare that is. He is, or someone like him. Um, but that changes everything when someone like that is involved with your family. Um, suddenly everything is okay. <laughs> it's okay to be, it's okay to breathe. And maybe things will be okay. And just changing that mentality leads to countless other changes in one's interactions with your children, with your partner, with your other children. Um, so I do think, not not to just pinpoint on that, but I, I do think that is just so key, that acceptance and compassion and really love for people. Is the ultimate word, isn't it? Love, yeah. Yeah. It, love is acceptance. <laughs> Yeah, I would echo what Morna said about the importance of changing how we relate to and approach these pains that people have, changing the languaging, changing the mentality. And um, yeah, I love what you said, Amy, about just expanding our idea of what is ordinary and seeing, I think, like the humanity in people. And I think people, like when they get into these situations, can often feel like a patient or um, like an experiment and um, how important and uh, significant it is to relate to people as human beings and their struggles as um, core parts of their story, but not something that is um, a limitation for them. I would just add to that um, uh, that the, the harder bit is how do we find a way to change the public narrative? Because, of course, a lot of families do come, understandably, and young people, understandably hoping or expecting that you're going to make a diagnosis and have a specific prescribed treatment, because that is what we are now teaching in the media and in the way our services work. So that uh, that's something that will need to change for us to be able to move towards um, greater acceptance and popularity of non-pathologizing services. I'd just like to uh, add what an honor it's been to have shared a panel with Morna and Kira. What wonderful people. What, um, so willing to share your stories, I think, is a it's a very um, precious thing that you're doing. I would just echo thanks and uh, what an honor it's been to be here and with my co-panelists and uh, with you, Amy and Karina uh, and Karen. Really, thank you so much. And thanks for the comments from everybody who's been listening.
yeah, I'm so honored to be invited here to speak with two such phenomenal people and the whole Madden America team for bringing this together and to all of you who came to listen and for all of your comments in the chat. Thank you so much for being here and for the work that you are doing in the world to be part of the change. Um, I, just so powerful hearing stories and observations. I just, they, it offers a window into a new way forward um, for families, for individuals, for all of us humans. And I, so I want to thank all of you. Kira Fonlo, Morna Murray, Sammy Tamimi, for agreeing to participate and for sharing your experiences, all that you've learned. Um, and I just want to remind everyone um, that Madden America does list many resources on our website. Um, and also our Mad in the Family page um, can be visited directly. You can access it from the homepage um, if you go up to the, the bar and click on the Family tab at the main bar. Um, but you can visit it directly at madinamerica.com forward slash parents. And there you'll find all sorts of content, including stories, um, information on Madden America's online parent support groups and more. Um, I've also put together a list of not just Madden America support groups, uh, but uh, just all a variety of other supports available. Um, and uh, once again, and also you can also sign up for the Madden America and Mad in Family newsletters. Uh, and you can also donate, which I will add again. Um, and you can check us out on social media. Um, Madden America and Madden the Family have uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts and uh and mad america also has an instagram so i just want to again thank you everyone thank you to the participants thank you for to the, the panelists and everybody who signed on um and may you all have a a, a good day and and to your week so thank you so much for listening today. And as a reminder, if you'd like to support our work, please visit maddenamerica.com forward slash donate. Thank you as always. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.